0: Doc Cohen, Brit Chazon, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast, broadcasting from a remote sukkah in an undisclosed location deep in the ancient Maccabean partisan camp. It was here in these very hills that the children of Israel once organized ourselves into a guerrilla force to resist the Syrian Greek Empire's control of our land and their campaign to forcibly westernize our society. In many ways, our history repeats itself like a spiral the characters change and the technology advances, but we often find ourselves reliving similar stories with familiar central themes. The way imperialism traditionally worked you know, in those times was direct military control by one nation over another's territory. Uh, but modern-day empires generally use more indirect methods to control and to dictate the internal policies and societal characters of subordinate nations. But just like in the past, dominant empires still collaborate with the ruling class of the subordinate nation to impose the worldview and value system of the empire as the dominated society's accepted cultural norm. So this has very much characterized Israel's relationship with the United States in recent decades, although it's possible that recent events here have reminded many Israelis that in the end we cannot depend on Washington to protect us. Many Israelis have begun to wake up to the danger of relying too heavily on the United States. But what's ironic is that this lesson wasn't learned through any of the many ways the U.S. exploits Israel, but rather through something Washington did to another people in the region that many Israelis deeply identify with. Just after a phone call with Turkish President Erdogan last Sunday, U.S. President Trump announced the withdrawal of American troops from Rojava, the parts of Kurdistan that comprised the north of the Syrian state during most of the last century. The U.S. withdrawal essentially gave Erdogan the green light for an incursion into the territory, which the Turkish military promptly did. And Trump continues to insist on his abandonment of Kurdish guerrillas who fought side to side with U.S. troops for years as being in Washington's long-term interests in our region. Now, I've said before and I'll say again that one thing we should find really refreshing about Donald Trump is how much more transparent he is about how U.S. foreign policy has anyway been functioning deep down all along. The Kurds have inspired millions of people throughout our region and beyond with their comparatively democratic methods and revolutionary outlook. But this is also precisely why they're so despised by all the ruling classes of the region in Erdogan in particular, they fear that the Kurdish struggle will become an inspiration for Kurds living under other regimes, and not only for the Kurds, for all other oppressed peoples of West Asia and North Africa, but for Erdogan in particular, the oppression of the Kurds is a necessary tool to cut through the class struggle in Turkey, allowing him to continue the oppression and exploitation of his country's working class. The interests of the ruling classes are diametrically opposed to those of the poor and oppressed masses. In Turkey, Iraq, Iran, and Syria, the same regimes who have oppressed the Kurds and other minorities for decades have also been brutalizing their own poor. And also in the West, the same leaders who have deceived, betrayed, and aided the oppression of the Kurds time and time again are carrying out austerity policies and viciously attacking the living standards of their own citizens. These regimes only see the Kurds and all other quote-unquote small nations of the region, including Israel, as disposable small change in their imperialist games here. The Kurdish people of Rojava cannot trust any of the ruling classes here or in the West. They can only rely on their own forces and on other oppressed peoples of the region to come to their aid. The Rojava revolution came about as part of the initial Syrian revolution, And it succeeded largely due to its revolutionary character and democratic methods, which appealed to wide layers of workers and poor throughout the region. But it made one major mistake. It allied itself with the forces of imperialism in our region. And while I can understand such a move as a short-term survival method, the Kurds fell into a very similar trap as Israel and allowed for the creation of conditions that made their long-term survival dependent on Washington. Seeing Trump's cynical and shameless betrayal of the Kurds has had a very sobering effect on many Israelis and will hopefully also lead to us deeply internalizing the realization that we cannot allow our deep sense of vulnerability to be exploited by the U.S. or any outside forces to coerce us into advancing their interests at the expense of our own. In fact, this is exactly how anti-Semitism works in the current global system. And it's not new. Even under feudalism, Jews were enlisted by the ruling classes as a vulnerable buffer group to manage the oppressions of others. As tax collectors and money lenders, Jews were the oppressors European peasants saw. And so when their oppressions became too much to bear, they took out their anger not against the lords in the castle, but against the Jews next door. The Jews, were a distraction away from their real oppressors. And the Jews themselves cooperated with the system because we felt ourselves to be powerless and extremely vulnerable and welcomed any protection or limited power offered by the authorities we lived under. And as the West transitioned from a feudalist to a capitalist system, systemic anti-Semitism was grandfathered in. People see many Jews in America, for example, accumulating wealth, moving up, and gaining positions of influence. And when they hear Jews who genuinely feel vulnerable and oppressed complaining about our oppression, they don't understand what we mean. Anti-Semitism doesn't work the way racism does. Racism works to create permanently exploitable groups of workers, people kept in line through discrimination and violence, kept poor and dependent on low-wage jobs. They serve as the shock absorbers for the economic downturns inherent in the system. Now, Jews were the shock absorbers of Europe's class societies. We were the middle agents drafted into being the local representatives of a distant ruling class that exploited and persecuted us while squeezing the lifeblood out of Europe's peasants and workers. The whole point of anti-Semitism has always been to create a vulnerable buffer group that can be bribed with some privileges into managing the exploitation of others. But when social pressure builds the buffer group can be blamed and scapegoated in order to distract those at the bottom from the crimes of those at the top. Peasants who go on a pogrom against their Jewish neighbors generally don't make it to the nobleman's castle to burn them out and seize the fields. This was the role of Jews in Europe, this has been the role of Jews in the United States, and this seems to be the role of Israel in the Semitic region. The state of Israel was established in war only a few short years after the Holocaust. The Jewish people still felt incredibly vulnerable, with Israel absorbing a refugee population twice its size while surrounded by British armed enemy states. Israel's first Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion, believed Israel's survival to depend on connecting our state to a big, powerful ally. This superpower patronage doctrine first sought out a relationship with the Soviet Union, quickly shifted to France and eventually landed on the United States. But the way a healthy nation is meant to behave, especially in today's social Darwinist geopolitical system, is to first define its interests and only then create alliances based on those interests. Perhaps due to a failure among Israeli leaders to define Jewish national interests beyond mere survival, we found ourselves first deciding who we want to be friends with and then defining our interests based on the agendas of the friends we want. And in recent months, it's become clear that Washington has a new man in Israel's political system that might at first glance seem like an unlikely candidate for the role. Israel Betenu leader, Avigdor Lieberman, has once again been holding up the formation of a governing coalition here in Israel. Last week, he presented his outline for a unity government calling for a rotation in which Likud leader Benjamin Netanyahu would serve as Prime Minister first, followed by Blue and White leader Benny Gatz. According to the outline, only the Likud, Kochol and Yisrael Beitenu would initially be included in the government. Additional Knesset factions would be permitted to join the coalition only after basic guidelines and budgets are decided. Lieberman's proposal includes four steps. In the first a joint team would be established for the three parties to decide the basic guidelines of the unity government. In the second phase, after basic issues are agreed upon, Lieberman demands the adoption of President Ruby Rivlin's outline for the Prime Minister's rotation. The third stage would be the establishment of a unity government comprised of the three parties that would immediately work to approve both the 2020 state budget and a concrete plan for drafting Haredi men of military age into Israel's army over the next 10 years. The fourth stage would be to allow other Knesset factions into the coalition on the basis of the existing guidelines and budget. Lieberman's rhetoric has recently been primarily directed against Israel's Haredi parties, who he calls to keep out of the coalition until such a time that they would have no meaningful influence over government policy. Now, at first glance, this might appear to just be a politician fighting for the interests of his electoral base, which, in addition to being Israelis from the former Soviet Union, also include many staunch proponents of European-style nationalism. And while this is part of the truth, it's not the whole truth. Lieberman is playing a much higher game than the average party leader or political operative. His language might target Haredim, but it's also been equally scathing against the Yamina party, specifically the National Union and Jewish home factions that last week separated from Ayala Chaked's more westernized Hayyamina Chadash. Lieberman is a seasoned political operative who knows he'd have an easier time strengthening his positions and broadening his appeal by targeting the Haredi political camp in his messaging but that's largely been a political smokescreen for his actual objective, a coalition without ideological nationalist parties committed to resisting the partition of the country. The Yisrael Beitenu leader has been clever enough to pair the Haredi parties with the national religious factions ideologically opposed to dividing the land of Israel, the factions he's likely been assigned by Donald Trump to keep out of the coalition in order to ease Israel's acceptance of Trump's closely guarded plan for a country. What most of us have missed during the politically tumultuous last year is that Lieberman has been acting on behalf of the Trump administration. In late April of 2018, Lieberman traveled to Washington and returned with a test balloon for Trump's plan to divide Israel into two separate states. Lieberman was serving as Israel's defense minister at the time and expressed support for the plan and urged Israelis to give it a chance. At this point, it should have become clear to the public that Lieberman had been recruited by the Trump team to drum up support for the initiative. Even earlier, in November 2016, Lieberman responded to news of Trump's electoral victory by presenting himself to be at the service of the new administration through expressing support for a Jewish construction freeze in most of the West Bank. Lieberman must have seen an opportunity for himself that very few people thought possible. Because he's been so associated with racist and neo-fascist positions over the years, attaching his political career to Washington's interests in the region only began to appear possible with a man like Donald Trump sitting in the Oval Office. But while Lieberman's ability to fill the role of Washington's man in Israeli politics has really only been made possible by the ascension of Donald Trump, the role itself has existed for way too long in our political system. Since the late 1970s, being the local representative of American empire has been a position carrying importance comparable with the Prime Minister's office, especially due to the fact that most Israelis have been conditioned by our media to view our survival as dependent on U.S. support. Throughout the 1980s and 90s, the role was given prestige by Shimon Peres. But following his ascension to Israel's presidency in 2007, Peres essentially became what we can call Western Asset Emeritus. That's what he was in our system. While figures like Ehud Barak, Ehud Olmert, and Sippy Livni competed for Washington's political favor. But now, with a U.S. president cozing up to some of the world's most reactionary political figures, Lieberman likely saw his opportunity to make himself useful to Trump's Israel team. The Trump administration's preference for a Netanyahu-Gantz government has been clear for some time, and that's exactly what Lieberman has been pushing for to ease the acceptance of Washington's regional agenda. And it should be within this context that we remember the fact that it was Lieberman's resignation as defense minister last November that initially sent the country to early elections the first time. And it was his refusal to join a nationalist coalition with the Likud that ultimately forced Israel into an immediate second election cycle. Despite Netanyahu's public embrace of Trump's policies, especially those he can promote as his own diplomatic accomplishments, the nationalist government he formed following the 2015 elections wasn't likely to accept the not-so-mysterious Trump plan. And that Trump plan has likely only been stalled so many times because it's awaiting an Israeli coalition that would accept it without a fight and have the stability to last through the plan's implementation. As the administration's new man in Jerusalem, Lieberman couldn't allow the formation of another nationalist government dependent on parties likely to resist Washington's agenda. The new coalition would need to be free of ideological nationalists like Rav Rafi Peretz and Betzalus Smotrich, who would likely destabilize any coalition succumbing to American pressure to surrender territory. Lieberman has until now been able to function under the radar largely due to the political naivete of Israel's national camp and right-wing diaspora Jews who genuinely lack the consciousness or sophistication to understand Washington's regional interests or how neo-imperialism actually works. Ecstatic to finally feel they have a friend in the White House, the Jewish right has slavishly fallen into the trap of systemic anti-Semitism and dismissed all evidence that the Trump plan will require major concessions from Israel. The Jewish right has adopted a policy of near-complete denial whenever hints arise that Trump will demand an Israeli retreat from the cradle of Jewish civilization. Since the failure of the Orange Resistance to save Gush Katif from destruction in 2005, it's been clear that Israel's national camp is in desperate need of political sophistication. But with the likelihood of an netanyahu gantz lieberman coalition looming and the Trump plan likely to drop on Israel as soon as such a government is formed, the need for such sophistication is looking increasingly necessary if we hope to mount an effective resistance to Washington's two-state agenda. And resisting this agenda is actually very much central to the theme of Sukkot. Sukkot is unique on our calendar because it's really the only festival that commemorates a mysterious future victory when a coalition of powerful nations attempt to separate us from our land. Part of what we celebrate during this week-long festival is a deep certainty in our future victory. But that certainty shouldn't alleviate us of responsibility to understand how today's global political playing field works and how to defend our interests on that field. In any case... I'd like to take this opportunity to wish listeners a happy new year, a Shana tova, and a chag sameach. And if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to give it a five star. You are listening to Yudah Cohen broadcasting from the Gofner Hills, and this is the Next Day Podcast.